0: Welcome to the Grace Long Beach Podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest, and the rest of us are seated.
1: Thank you, Ursula. Uh, Good morning. My name uh, is Steve Porter, and uh, my wife, Alicia, and I and our two kids have been here at Grace for many, many years now. Uh, I also teach theology at uh, Talbot School of Theology, which is part of Biola University. Uh, I teach theology at our, our School of Psychology as well there. And every once in a while, I have the honor and privilege to uh, stand uh, before you and, and uh, teach in this way, so it's, it's an honor to be here. I appreciate last week uh, Eric Balmer... Uh, Uh, spoke to us, and he he began by talking about why is it that that we do this thing called church? And uh, I assume many of you, most of you know that we are in a bit of transition uh, here at Grace. Uh, A few months ago, Lou Huseman uh, resigned after 28 years of of being here. And so that's thrown us a little bit as a community, hasn't it? And uh, and I just want to say, I think this is a really wonderful opportunity for us, I spend a good deal of my work week hanging out with pastors and wannabe pastors, pastors in training. And uh, I, I teach with people who write books on what it is to be the church and effective church strategy in the 21st century. And I just want to say there's a lot of confusion out there about what it means to be the people of God in this time and place, in our in our culture, in our, in our contemporary world. And there's a lot of churches that would love to be able to, to uh, press a reset button. They, they would love to be able to step back and rethink, uh, reconfigure their life together, re-envision what it means to be the people of God. But, but they really can't. They haven't been given that space, that permission. They're, they're stuck in a way of doing business. They have a vision. They have a staff that's in place, and, and they can't step back. But we've been given this great opportunity that a lot of other churches would love to have, to step back, and I really appreciate how our leadership has has given us that time and space to not be in a rush, to re-envision together what does it mean to be the people of God in today's world. And what's exciting about that, from my perspective, is we don't start from scratch. We don't start from ground zero. The church is an interesting organization in that uh, we are not defined by this building. We're not defined by the name that hangs on our door. Uh, we're not defined by our, our previous leadership or our current leadership. We're not defined even by our own unique history as a congregation. The Church of Jesus Christ has already been given a definition by God. We, we already know who we are, our identity, our identity. Uh, our our calling, our mission. It's already been defined for us. It's been determined. There's lots of ways to talk about these things, but, I mean, one way to think about it is that our fundamental identity is that we are beloved children of God. And and that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ, united in Christ. And, And our calling, we've been called out of the world to learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to learn to love one another, and to learn to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The three great love commands. And there's lots of ways to talk about our mission, but one good way is the words that Jesus used in what we call his great commission. To go into all the world and make disciples, make students of him. uh, Baptizing them, immersing them in the name, the character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that Jesus commanded. And then Jesus says, and lo, I will be with you always. That's our mission. So so our identity, our calling, our mission, it's already been given. What we need to figure out is how we're going to apply that in our setting, given who we are, given our gifts that that Jenny prayed about, given our leadership, given given Long Beach. How are we going to apply that identity? How are we going to live that out? And that's a tough question. That's a hard question. But the toughest question has already been answered for us. We already know who we are. We already know what we've been called to, and we already know our mission. So I'm uh, thrilled to be uh, with you today and thrilled to be a part of this congregation, and I just want to say I think um, we have some exciting uh, decades, maybe centuries, ahead of us. Um, So uh, I uh, did one of my graduate degrees at um, the University of Southern California. Can I get a witness? I was... (laughs) I was afraid I might not. Um, and I studied um, with a man there by the name of Dallas Willard. Some of you may know uh, of his name. He's a, he was a Christian philosopher at USC for many, many years. He wrote um, several books on the Christian life. And um, while Dallas was a well-known Christian, he didn't teach Christianity. He taught philosophy. So he didn't explicitly talk about Jesus or the Christian faith in his classes. But I remember one day after class, there was a group of students, and we were uh, kind of waiting around to ask him some additional questions. And there was one student who went up to Dallas and said, I hear you're a Christian. And he said, Yes, I'm, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this student said, How can you be a philosopher and be a Christian? And it was clear from the tone of his voice that he thought there was an inconsistency between those two things. How can you be a philosopher? and be a Christian. It was also fairly clear that that if one of those two things was going to drop out, it was going to be the Christianity business. He was really confused about that part of it. And ever since I heard Dallas respond to this question, his response has lingered with me. So the, the student asks, how can you be a philosopher and be a Christian? And Dallas's response was, what else did you have in mind? Now, you've got to think about that response for a bit, and I've thought about it for over 15 years, and um, it, it wasn't a smackdown or a put-down. He wasn't trying to put this student in his place. It was really an invitation. What way of life do you follow? How have you organized your life to be in the world? See, because Dallas believed that Jesus had the best answers— to the fundamental questions of human existence. That Jesus had the best answers to questions like, what is real? Uh, what is life really all about? What does it mean to be a good person? How do you become a good person? That Jesus had the best answers to those kinds of questions. So he was really curious as to what answers this student had found. Right? remember one time Dallas said, uh, if you could find a better way to live your life, Other than following Jesus, Jesus would be the first person to tell you to go for it. And that wasn't because Jesus would think you actually had found it, but it was was a way to say Jesus loves us. He wants our good. And if you could actually find a better way of life apart from him, he'd be the first one to say, go for it then. I want what's good for you. Dallas put it uh, this way in one of his um, writings. You lead people to become disciples of Jesus by ravishing them with a vision of life in the kingdom of the heavens, in the fellowship of Jesus. What I want to talk about today is whether we have a vision of life with Christ that is so beautifully compelling that persons want to know about this Jesus guy. Notice I'm not asking whether we embody such a life, that's an important question, but do we even have a vision that such a life with Jesus is possible, that it's available? It's not that once we come to Jesus, everything starts to go our way, but that once we come to Jesus, we don't need things to go our way quite as much. We've come to slowly but surely entrust ourselves, our well-being, to his care, no matter what. And this is the vision of life with the Lord that we see in Psalm 23. We're in this uh, series of psalms and signs, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 23. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Psalm 23. I think it's page uh, 458, or you might have received one of these little bookmarks as you came in, and you could just turn to either side of the bookmark, it turns out, and Psalm 23 is also uh, there. I want to f- frame my comments about Psalm 23 in reference to this, um, this study I came across uh, quite recently. Uh, I came across this article that was entitled, America's Greatest Gospel Opportunity Lives in Your House. Uh, this was a, 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 a study, an empirical study that was uh, funded by, or commissioned and funded by a, an organization called the Pine Tops uh, Foundation. And w- what they did is they brought together uh, some statisticians and looked at the statistics on the declining number of Christians in the U.S. over the last several years. So perhaps you're aware of this, but no matter what branch of Christianity you look at right now, evangelical, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, mainline, Pentecostal, no matter what branch of Christianity you look at, the numbers are on the decline in the U.S. at a pretty uh, stark rate of decline. And and what they determined, that is, if that rate of decline of Christians continues, that in the next 30 years, 30 to 40 million young people who are currently in Christian homes will walk away from Jesus. If the rates continue at their current rate of decline, 30 to 40 million of young people who are currently living in self-identified Christian homes In the next 30 years, we'll slowly but surely walk away from Jesus if the rates continued. Now, you might say, why is this called America's greatest gospel opportunity? Well, because what they realized, that if we can just return those conversion and retention rates, that's their language, conversion and retention rates, back to what they were just 15 years ago, if we could turn those rates of conversion and retention back to what they were just 15 years ago, $20 of those 30 to 40 million would not walk away from the faith. 20 million young people who are currently in Christian homes would remain with Jesus. And they're calling this the largest gospel opportunity in the history of America, these 20 million, because if 20 million young people continued to walk with Jesus over the next three years, that would be more Conversions to Jesus than all of the revivals in American history, including the Billy Graham Crusade, put together. So, the greatest opportunity for the gospel in the U.S. lives in a lot of our homes. The greatest opportunity for the gospel in the U.S. are seated in your rows or over there in our education building. And I have to I don't see him now he because he's over there, but I remember last week Oppie Fluit, in a funny but also serious way was challenging us about our children's ministry. And and this 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 should challenge us. Because if, if we care about people coming to Jesus, a good place for us to be on Sunday morning is over there. Here too, but every f- few weeks maybe over there. But here's the question. Do we have a vision of life with Jesus? Do we have a vision of life with Jesus that's so compelling, so ravishing, that our children will want to stay with Christ? Do we have a vision of life with Jesus that we can offer those kids in that education building? Well, Psalm 23, I think, can help us answer that question. We have to be careful with Psalm 23. Uh, It's probably the most famous portion of Scripture in the Bible, at least one of them, and so we have to be careful with it because we're likely to take it for granted. We don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm. Some commentators think that it was written while David was fleeing from his son Absalom. If you know that story, Absalom decides he wants to be king, and he gathers together an army, and he comes after David, and David runs. And he leaves Jerusalem, and he's on the run. I mean, think about that. Your son wants to kill you. I mean, talk about some dysfunctional family dynamics, right? His son wants to kill him and become king. And in the midst of that, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And you got to just stop right there and say, what is David telling us? Because he's offering us an image of who Yahweh is. David's good at this. He's often giving some sort of imaginative shape to who God is. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my shield. The Lord is my light. And here he says, Yahweh, the highest one, is like one of the lowliest ones. The Lord is my shepherd. What this tells us about God is that Yahweh has taken responsibility for our care, like a shepherd takes responsibility for his sheep. Psalm 95 says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. So the psalm starts out with this invitation to to think about how do we conceive of God? Do Do we... Think about God? Do we imagine God? Do we really believe that God is our shepherd? And I want us to think today about Scripture as an invitation. Sometimes we, I think we come to Scripture and, and it's, it's more of a, um, a something we have to kind of deal with or something we just have to kind of take on. But Scripture can be an invitation. Here's an invitation I found. I don't know if you can read that, but here's an RSVP card. Uh, you can gladly attend regretfully decline, resentfully attend, there's an option, uh, enthusiastically decline, or will decline to respond but ultimately attend. that's, That's usually what I end up doing, I think. But the nice thing about an invitation, right, is you can talk back to it. You know, when you get these evites, you can say, yes, I'll come, no, maybe, and you can even comment. I'd love to be there, but we have something else going. Uh, sounds like a great party, but I just don't think we can make it. And see, with Scripture, we can come to Psalm 23 and say, The Lord is my shepherd. It sounds nice, but I'm not really sure I can get there. I'm not really sure that that's where I'm at right now. And so I want us to consider as we go through this psalm that this is an invitation. David is inviting us to consider this reality that he's experiencing that's true that God is with him. And he goes on to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And again, we just have to stop and say, David, are you serious? Your son is trying to kill you. David, you're the same guy who in Psalm 22, another famous psalm, starts out by saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David, how did you get from my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To the Lord is my shepherd, I have need of nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, with him everything I need is taken care of. How did David get there? He wasn't in denial, he wasn't pretending, he could be honest about how he felt with the Lord, and yet here he has gotten himself into a place with the Lord that he is deeply confident that God's, of God's goodness. Um, at one place, uh, he tells us in the next stanza, really part of how this came about, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Really, it's right paths, uh, good paths, direct paths. The whole imagery here is of a sheep, right? He leads me in these right paths for his name's sake. That really means because that's the kind of shepherd he is. He leads me me in these right paths because of who he is. And so here we see David saying that part of the reason why he has this deep confidence that the Lord is his shepherd and he shall not want is because there are times when life has gone very well for David where he is like a sheep lying down in green pastures. I'm told that if you see a sheep lying down, it means they're satisfied. They're not hungry. And this image of a sheep lying down in green pastures means the sheep is full and there's plenty of grass when the sheep gets hungry. This this is a time of life when God's goodness is evident in David's external circumstances. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... But but David doesn't just learn about God's goodness and provision in the good times. No, he makes it clear that God is equally competent to care in the dark times. He goes on to say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, why doesn't he fear evil? Is it because with God the evil will be dispersed? Dispersed? Is it because God will make sure no evil occurs? No, that's not what he says. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You've got my back. Your your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And notice how the language changes here. He he changes from third person. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. To you are with me. In the valley, it's no longer he, it's... You, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David has come to accept that the presence of God doesn't always take the evil away in his life, but the presence of God can nevertheless take away his fear of evil. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's done a lot of work on the Psalms, says this it's, It is God's companionship that transforms every situation. It does not mean there are no deathly valleys no enemies, but they are not capable of hurt, and so the powerful loyalty and solidarity of Yahweh comfort precisely in situations of threat. Brueggemann goes on, for one whose life has been transformed by such solidarity, a life of worshipful praise is a crown for time to come, a safe place in which to live for now. Psalm 23 knows that evil is present in the world, but it is not feared. Confidence in God is the source of new orientation. And I think we really need to stop and think for a moment about how is it that with God's rod and his staff, his presence, uh, we will fear no evil. Uh, Because I think if we stop and think about it, it it, it really is true. I I think of 1 John 4 that says that perfect love drives out fear. And it really would, wouldn't it? I mean, if we really realized we're perfectly loved by the God of the universe, who has all power, and who knows what we need, what would we have to be fearful of? But I don't know about you, I'm I'm not there yet. I, I believe in God's presence, I believe in His power, and yet I still have a lot of fear. I remember one day, uh, my wife and I, this is several years back now, we were in need of a, of a second car. Our previous car had broken down, and so we were on the market for a car, and we didn't have much money. And uh, I sh- had shared this for some reason in one of my classes, maybe thinking one of my students would give me their car or something, but that didn't happen. And, um, but I did have a student come up to me, and he said, have you thought about buying a new car? And I said, well, no, not really. We're really not in that sort of financial position right now. And he said, well, if you do think about it, let me know, because my father-in-law is a VP, a vice president at uh, Toyota Lexus, you know, international VP of Toyota Lexus and um, nationwide company or whatever, international company. And I, and he, and I said, well, wh- what do you, so what, what does that do? And he said, well, here's what you could do. You could go to any Toyota Lexus dealer you want. Actually, he he quit using the word Lexus. I think he thought I was more in the Toyota market. I was a little, <laughs> little offended by that, but he's, he said, you can go to any Toyota dealer you want and uh, find any car you want, test drive any car you want, and then once you get to the place where you decide which car you want, don't go and sit down with the salesperson and the manager and go through all that haggling. Just call me, and I'll call my father-in-law. And tell me what dealer you're at and which car you want and what color. And my father in law will call whoever manages that dealership and you'll get the car at the lowest possible price. And I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. And so, and so my wife and I went on this uh, Toyota Lexus uh, car lot. And I've never walked on a car lot with such peace. <laughs> and, and no fear. And I felt sorry for the salesman that drove us around for hours test-driving all these cars because he was sizing us up. How much do you want to spend today? And I just thought, well, it doesn't really matter because <laughs> as soon as I get to that moment, I'm going to make a phone call. See, Even if I walk in the valley of a Toyota dealership, I will fear no evil because the VP of sales is with me. Right? That, that's what David's talking about here. Now, of course, the stakes are a lot higher. It's not just about purchasing a car. But he's saying, look, I, I know somebody. I know somebody, and he's, and he's going to take care of me. So even if I walk through the valley of darkness, I fear no evil. You're with me. And it's not just in the good times that David gets this. It's not just in the dark times but it's also in the embattled times. He goes on to say, um, uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Here the psalm turns to to a different image. It's no longer the sheep and the shepherd. Now it's a banquet table. And, And he's surrounded by enemies. And again, we can assume David really is. Probably Absalom and his troops. And he's saying that even when I'm surrounded by enemies, it's like God has prepared a table before me of food, and he's anointed my head with oil, this sign of blessing, and, 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 my, and he's filled my cup, my cup runneth over. And in the ancient uh, Jewish world, if you came to sit down for a meal and the host filled your cup with wine and it overflowed, that was an invitation to stay as long as you want. It means there's so much provision in this house that we can spill the wine. And David is imagining himself at this banquet table, surrounded by his enemies, and yet the Lord is with him. He's going to take care of him. And we have to ask ourselves, how did David get there? David, it sounds like a great party, but but I'm not sure I can make it. How did you get to this place where you were, were so ravished? by this vision of life with the Lord that, that you had internalized it, that it had sunk into your bones. And again, it, it gets even better because it's not just in the good times, it's not just in the dark times, it's not just in the embattled times, but then David goes on to tell us that each and every day of his life, all the way up until his death, he's hemmed in. He says, surely goodness and mercy, and that word there for mercy is the Hebrew word hased. Steadfast love, loving kindness, even mercy, goodness, and steadfast love shall follow me, shall pursue me all the days of my life. And when I die, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is so confident in that steadfast love that that it, it feels like that steadfast love is after him each and every day of his life. And then when his life is over, that steadfast love will just take him into the courts of the Lord. And I think about Diane. And I think about Danielle and Dylan. David says how lovely is your dwelling place O Lord my soul longs even faints for the courts of the Lord blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart, in whose heart are the highways to Zion the city of God. They go from... Last few times I've preached, I've, I think I've cried every time. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> they go from strength to strength. Uh, each one appears before God in Zion. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. See, is that true? Do we have that vision of life with the good shepherd? Because Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus identifies himself with Psalm 23. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them never-ending zoe, never-ending animating life and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Psalm 23 offers us a vision of life within the goodness of God's care. And I think we have to return to that question, how did David get there? And, and I want to I mention just two things. There's a lot to say about this. But first, It it looks like David didn't have anything else in mind. He was caught up seeking first the reality of the kingdom of God. He had nothing else in mind. And and I think we have to ask ourselves, do I really want this kind of life or do I have some, some other way in mind? Am I really enthralled with Jesus or only prepared to put up with him? Do I want a little bit of Jesus, maybe just on Sunday mornings and to start my day, but then I'd rather just do my own thing after that? Or am I really wanting to come like the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe help those parts of me that aren't there yet. Lord, I want you to be the good shepherd. Help the parts of me that don't want it yet. So we have to start by asking ourselves, do we we really want this? Here's Dallas Willard again. He said, the reality is that most of religion, he means by that Christianity, is organized around keeping God at a distance, allowing us to go see him when we want. We say things such as, Lord, this morning we come into thy presence, to which God might be saying, really? Where have you been? For God has always been present. Do we want that kind of life? The second thing I think we see about David in terms of how he got there is that David psalmed his way into this kind of life. He psalmed his way into it. He confessed and lamented and praised and and thanked God and prayed his way, sang his way into Psalm 23. He was willing to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it's hard to get to Psalm 23 if you don't go through Psalm 22. And so I think for us, the question is, what am I doing on a daily basis to bring the range of my experience, anger, fear, sadness, anticipation, worry, confusion, gratitude, into conversation with the Good Shepherd? What are the practices that you have, that I have, that are bringing us into the reality that the Lord is my shepherd, I have need of nothing. Not because my life is so good, but because with Him, I'm taken care of. I want to leave us with two challenges this morning. Uh, First, In a sermon like this that's titled, The Gospel According to Psalm 23, I think it would be a missed opportunity to not say, if you haven't begun your journey with Jesus, if you haven't come to Jesus as the Good Shepherd, there's no better time than now to say, Lord, I I want that kind of life with you. I am compelled by that vision. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And if you've never come to Jesus, then in your own silent prayer this morning, or with someone that you're with this morning, or if you want to come up after service, there'll be people praying up here. I'd be willing to pray with you. There's no better time than now to come to Jesus. And some of us were raised in a tradition where we got saved every week. I got saved every year at summer camp for about ten years. And you know, that's okay too. It can be a little confusing, but, but really the Christian life is about coming to Jesus over and over and over again and, and saying, I need you to save me. And maybe there's nothing wrong with getting saved again and again until we just don't leave anymore. So my first challenge is if you've never begun your relationship with Jesus, you can take that step today. My second challenge has to do with this little bookmark, and it's a challenge to bring Psalm 23 into your daily prayer life. If you have even a glimmer of hope that this kind of life could be yours, one of the things we can do concretely is we can just experiment with this prayer and put it on the dashboard of your car, or I don't know, I don't glue things to my bathroom mirror. We don't do that. But, you know, you could tape it to your bathroom mirror if you want. Just put it someplace where you're going to see it every day and just, just pray through it. It's an invitation. The Lord is my shepherd. And just stop there and say, God, I don't, I don't know if I'm experiencing you like a shepherd. I don't even know what that would mean, God. Or, Lord, yes, you are my shepherd and, and I see how you're providing for me. Maybe not in the ways I wanted, but I see your provision. And you just pray your way through that. Try it out. Maybe some of you already use Psalm 23 in that way. I think the challenge for us is, is to lament and confess and thank God until the reality of Psalm 23 begins to get under our skin and into our bones so that we begin to walk more and more in the vision that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for these people, and I'm thankful for your people all over the world today who gather in your name. And Lord, we live in an interesting period of human history, and this world uh, needs you. And so Lord, help us to become the kinds of people who have been so ravished by you that folks come up to us and say, "I I heard you're a Christian. How can you be a Christian and be a business person? How can you be a Christian and be a teacher? And that we can have such confidence in the goodness of your way that we might be able to say, what else did you have in mind? Lord, help us uh, to enter into that way more and more. We thank you for your people and for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.